Hi everyone, and thankful we're together as we continue our special Advent series. We're in week three of a four-week study, taking a deep dive into Isaiah 9-6. In early studies, we explored Jesus as wonderful counselor and mighty God. Today, Pastor Charles Burson looks at Jesus as the everlasting Father. But why call the Son of God the everlasting Father? When we think of the term Father, we often think of a physical father or someone with father-like characteristics. Here, as Pastor Char tells us, why the title Everlasting Father is synonymous with life giver. So why did the giver of all life, the creator of all things, himself become one of us? We'll see how it's a response to the saying, nothing can save us that is possible. This morning we are continuing our observation of Advent leading up to Christmas. And we've been asking this question, what child is this based off of the description of this child king promised here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7? Now, a few years ago, probably 10 years ago now, we had some really, really dear friends who um, had moved to Northern California, and they were visiting churches before they landed at our church, Refuge. And it was during the Christmas season, and they went to this church that would, their slogan was, Church for People Who Don't Like Church. And so something that they would do, you know, it was like a seeker-friendly church, and one thing that they would do is they would hire uh, professional musicians to lead the music. And so they play things like Thank You, India by Alanis Morissette. You know, they play like Where the Streets Have No Name, right? Like songs just that people love and draw out like all this emotion for them. But, you know, like just the spiritual depth of it just wasn't there. So they go for this Christmas gathering, and they play this video, you know, it's like, do, 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 what is the true meaning of Christmas? And it's kind of like, you know, man on the street asking all these different people, like, you know, what do you think the true meaning of Christmas is? You know, it's like, well, it's family, you know, and it's, it's peace on earth. And people are just saying all this different stuff. And, you know, finally it kind of ends in this crescendo, and it's all, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And it kind of goes dark. And the hired musician just says, I guess we'll never know the true meaning of Christmas. And it just goes silent, and then some woman yells out, It's Jesus! <laughs> Which is just so good, right? So we're not asking this question because we are like the clueless musician who doesn't know the true meaning of Christmas, or because somehow... It builds anticipation if we act like we don't know, though we really do. We're asking this question because it helps keep us from the contempt and callousness that can come through familiarity. And I think if you have been in the church long enough, if you walked with Jesus long enough, you'll know that this is a danger for anyone. Growing up in the church and experience Christmas time each year, right? And some years are, they feel more, you know, that God is nearer than others, sometimes feel more joyful than others. And then we can look back in nostalgia, or we can look back in, in wanting and longing, and we can compare these years to those years and all this, right? And what can happen within us is just this jadedness, this cynicism. I feel this in myself often. But I think asking this question causes me to slow down 
And it invites me, it invites us into a fresh curiosity of and, and an opportunity to renew wonder, to consider this child whom our carols say is the desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. Now, if we're not careful, we could just sing that. We could just hear it in the malls as we're shopping, and it's just a throwaway. The desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. One author writes, have you ever thought on these words of Isaiah 9, 6 through 7? They begin, for to us a child is born, and realize just how strange they are. At first glance, the grand titles and expectations seem absurd to place on a child. It is a strange picture. A small child hunched over like Atlas. A government set on his shoulders, wearing a crown, perched on a throne with a very troubled look on his face, as if to say, what in the world am I doing here? And yet, this is exactly what these verses tell us to be true. Of course, there is no actual building, no real throne, and no crown but one of thorns. But the thought is still astounding. This child, this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, would be the fulfillment of these promises. He would be and is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is this astonishing prophecy we keep in mind when we ask the question, what child is this? Now, as we contemplate together this amazing truth of God, as a human, as a helpless baby, into the world, you know, come in to, to rescue and redeem it, to redeem each of us, my honest-to-God prayer, not just like, oh, I've been, you know, I pray. I have been praying. And what I have been praying is for myself, and for you to be filled with renewed awe and wonder at the impossibility and the incredibleness of this whole event. This quote by W.H. Auden, I believe I shared it last year, so forgive me if you feel that I'm cheating. It's been this thought for me, though, that just provokes awe and wonder about the true nature of what we observe at Christmas. Auden says, nothing can save us that is possible. The human race can expect to receive no lasting comfort from the world. The comfort we so desperately need must come from somewhere else in a burst of transcendent power breaking upon our ears from beyond our sphere altogether. And so this is just something I want you to carry as we talk about the everlasting Father. Nothing can save us that is possible. And so my task this morning is to invite each of us into that wonder of this promised child king who is called not just Wonderful Counselor, not just Mighty God, but Everlasting Father. So, this title, many have been confused at this title. 
Not only that, but theological books, Christmas devotionals, even Christmas songs, and trust me, I've read them all. In the last three weeks, this is what I've been doing, right? They either completely leave out comment, you know, it's just like elaboration paragraphs on the mighty God, and then you come to the everlasting Father, and it's like, Father eternal, and then Prince of Peace, oh, like all the things that we can say. They either leave out comment completely or add something else in its stead and say something like, well, it means Father of Eternity. It's like, that's cheating. You literally just rearrange the words. That helps, that does not help me at all. Thank you. So you can just imagine what my last few weeks have been. And there was a moment in my studies where I thought, I might just have to pull the clueless musician response and say, church, I guess we'll never know, right? (laughs) (laughs) But why is this promised king of Israel called everlasting father? Have you ever thought about this? It's strange. There was one commentary that focused more on the human side of this king. When you think about how and where and when this prophecy comes. It is in the midst of so much turmoil of the kings of Israel and of the nation of Israel. They are in a bad place. Just years and years and years of corrupt, terrible leadership. Ahaz himself is not just a wicked king, but one who actually creates new idols for the people to worship the Baals. He is one who causes his children to pass through the fires of Molech and burns his children in the fire. There's a story that he goes to Damascus later at the end of his life, and he sees there just this beautiful, ornate altar, and he goes back to Jerusalem, and what he does is he has the priest just rip out everything that is dedicated to Yahweh, and he installs a copy of this altar from Damascus. This man is exceedingly, exceedingly wicked. And you think about this incredible promise that comes to such a wicked man, a tyrant, a murderer of his own family. This promise of a renewed kingdom, of a good, good king. And so there is this possibility that we could look at this and think, this is a king, if we take the very human side, who at his very core is father. And of course, we mean father in the best of terms, right? One whose care and concern is for his people, not for his own honor, glory, and personal benefit, but this king This promised king to come, this ideal king, functions as a father in relation to his people. He protects them. He feels affection and compassion for his people, even as his own children. And we think, again, about the context of this. This is a very thought-provoking and powerful promise when we think about the wickedness and total selfishness of the many kings of Israel and Judah. What a contrast that this king is the king that cares for and is concerned about his people. It's a beautiful thought. I think the problem is is it misses out on this really important word, I think, which is 
What about the everlastingness of this father? What of that? And I think Justin Thomas last week, I think he was correct when he noted that each of these titles, they are not titles that you can attribute to an ordinary human being, or at least not when taken altogether. But rather, each of these titles speaks not just to this king's qualities, but also of his total uniqueness as a divine king, a king that is wholly other, a king that we've never seen or experienced before. And because of that, I do believe that Everlasting Father is a title and a scripture of the deity, the divinity of this promised king. But that doesn't really help with our confusion, does it? Right? Because if, if you know your Christian doctrine, this is still pretty confusing. We know that this is a prophecy ultimately about Jesus Christ, who is the unique Son of God, who is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. But they are two distinct persons within the Godhead. So again, what can this possibly mean that the Son coming into the world as the Messiah, the ideal reigning King, is everlasting Father? The name literally means, when translated, Father Eternal. You know, the Hebrew word, we're probably this might be one of the one Hebrew words that we're familiar with, Abba. The title here is Abiad, Father of Eternity, or Father Eternal. And this title is not about a physical father, and it's most likely not a reference to a fatherly-like character of the king, but rather a high Christological title in reference to Jesus, the Son of God, as the author of all things, the source of all life, the progenitor of everyone and everything or as Revelation calls him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, John the Apostle in his epistle, he uses this kind of language as well as in his gospel. Remember, 1 John 1, he says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Remember, that is the logos, the one from whom all life has sprung into being. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. Paul the Apostle as well, he elaborates even more on this idea of Jesus as author of life. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. 
such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, and everything was created for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. What Isaiah is calling us to look upon, to wonder at, to hope in, I believe, is this big, monstrous idea that the creator of all things becomes himself a human creature. That is the wonder of this question. What child is this? You know, in our recent studies in the Gospel of John, before we started this series, we were considering the condescension of God in Jesus Christ. That in and through Jesus, that what we see him doing is actually the image of the invisible God. And that we shouldn't, you know, look at Jesus and then try to fit him into our ideas about God that we already have established, but that Jesus should actually be the one who defines what we think about God. And I believe here in Isaiah, this is what he wants. He wants to provoke that same kind of wonder as we contrast the infinite wisdom of the wonderful counselor concentrated in a child who knows or speaks no word. He wants us to gasp, as we did last week, at the mighty God who becomes radically vulnerable and helpless to the care of a young mother. He wants us to behold the everlasting one, the infinite become finite, constrained by time and space the creator become creation. You know, it's a really fascinating thing. Sometimes I think we think about time and depending on who you're talking to, right? Like time goes so fast or time just feels like it drags on forever. And of course, when you're waiting, when you're anticipating something, it's wild how long time can drag on. I mean, you can see this just in like, you know, a watch pot never boils. Anybody like, you're like, oh my gosh, it's true. And then I looked away and then I looked back and it's boiling all of a sudden. It's the craziest thing. But this is true in our lives. Anytime we're waiting, we're longing for something, gosh, it feels like an eternity. And to think that the eternal God who is outside of all of that, like 
angst and longing and like, if it would just come, that he would subject himself and that Jesus himself actually observes Advent. He awaits for the arrival of the kingdom of God with deep, deep longing that the eternal would subject himself to time and space and feel all that we feel. The disappointments of hope deferred that makes the heart sick, as Scripture says. This is what Isaiah wants us to hold in tension. One of my favorite Christmas carols invites us to gaze and wonder at this incredibly, incredible sight, which many of them do. I was just thinking about that, let all mortal flesh keep silent. I don't know if you've ever read the words to that, but I, maybe this is some homework for this morning. But just to go and read those words, they're astounding. The tune is a, it's kind of a dirge, so maybe just read it. But this hymn to me is, even last week I played it actually, and there is not a time that I have played this hymn where it has not just struck deep, deep worship within my heart. It says, come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, the newborn child. See the mighty, weak and tender. See the word, the eternal word who now is mute. See the sovereign without his splendor. See the fullness destitute. See how humankind received him. See him, wa- see him wrapped in swaddling bands, who as Lord of all creation rules the wind by his command. See him lying in a manger without sign of reasoning. The word of God to flesh surrendered He is wisdom's crown, our king. I imagine that Charles Spurgeon was meditating on this passage when he wrote these words. He says, infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, Supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. He that made humanity made human. But why is he here? Why? I mean, why the drama? And again, I think sometimes the cynical heart feels like, okay, we get it. In unapproachable glory from everlasting to everlasting, made small, and every year we can become cold and callous to this, is yeah, okay, we go through the motions, we go through the script, 
Why is he here? He is here because nothing can save us that is possible. That's why the drama. For some strange reason, I'm a weird person, so that's probably why. Each Advent season, I think about John F. Kennedy's commencement speech in 1963. A few of you are like, you weren't even alive. <laughs> Correct. I was not even alive. His speech is powerful. Some of you might even remember it. You might even remember where you were when you heard the speech. It's powerful. It's inspiring. Compelling. As he talks of peace. One famous line probably everyone in this room has heard is where he says that he isn't simply talking about peace for America and not even or merely peace in our time, but peace for anybody? Wow, people. American history, come on. Peace for all time. Thank you, Kathy. I knew I could rely on you. Not just peace in our time, but peace for all time, right? That's like he's almost kind of got like that Nixon kind of drawl thing that he does. It's like his Bostonian accent. He continues to talk about what we're facing as a country at that time and as the world at that time and what he calls total war, the threat of total war. He's talking about Russia. My gosh, what year is it? But he continues to speak of the possibility of peace and speaks against those naysayers who say is impossible. But this is the bit I think about all the time. He says this, we need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Now, this speech is truly inspiring. I enjoy it. And I agree with the sentiment that we should work for peace in our time and for all time, but the truth is nothing can save us that is actually possible. And this is the confronting truth of the gospel. Nothing can actually save you, rescue you, redeem humanity that is humanly possible. And that is the wonder of the incarnation. That creator must become creation in order to give life to the world. That is the miracle and impossibility that is Christmas. And so I just want to say, man, if you're dismal, if Christmas is just a bummer to you, if you're just reminded because you read the headlines of just how screwed up this world is, guess what? That actually is the sentiment of Christmas. That people who sit in darkness, there is no possibility, but the light of eternity dawns upon them. That is the promise of the gospel. Not that the sun will rise, but that light itself that is given light to the sun will dawn upon us and give life to the world. That is the impossibility that is Christmas. 
Nothing strictly human can save us. Humans have tried again and again. We hope in kings. We hope in governments. Our candidate rises to the top and all of America is like hope or make America great again. And we think this is really going to be it. This is really going to turn the tide. And each time, each time we're disappointed again and again and again. This is what the people of Israel must have felt. King after king after king after king after failure after failure after failure. And they begin to probably say within their hearts, nothing can save us if possible. But that, I don't even know if I'm making sense right now, but there's like an ironic truth to that dismal statement, isn't there? Ahaz, something very interesting about Ahaz is that Ahaz is one king in particular that is given incredible promises. I mean, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, comes to Ahaz. And then not only that, but this promise of, you know, this child that will be born, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Oh, man, and just the kingdom of peace that will have no end. These great and precious promises are given to Ahaz. You know what's interesting about the story of Ahaz? Is that Ahaz, though he hears, though these promises are directed at him, do you know what Ahaz does? He continues to negotiate. He continues to try every single possibility to rescue his kingdom in his own strength. And it's just a mess. He tries to make multiple alliances, and all the while, this impossible promise is there on offer from God to a wicked king. And yet, Ahaz will continue to attempt every possibility. He will exhaust every possibility, and he will inscribe he will scorn the impossible promise of God. I would love to say, oh, Ahaz, what a fool. But how often is that true of every single one of us? I will just continue to attempt the possible again and again and again, when what I actually need, what can actually save me, is impossible and can only come as a gift from God. Remember the angel's words to Mary upon the announcement of her giving birth to Messiah. The angel Gabriel says, with God, nothing shall be impossible. The only hope is that in an act of sheer grace, life itself, the source, the author, the creator would make himself totally accessible, approachable, knowable, touchable, consumable to give his life for the world. This is the true wonder of Christmas, that in the manger, 
lies life itself for the world to feed upon and live. Do you know the word manger comes from the Latin word to eat? Just so fascinating. When the Son of God is born into this world, he is laid in this trough. It's a message to the world. Come and eat. Partake of life itself. It is here on offer. That the creator become creation is laid in a feeding trough or even that the very town where this particular event takes place, Bethlehem, the house of bread, is neither accidental nor just some work of clever editing. It is an offer on hand for any and all who will hear. Anyone who has felt the impossibility of hope, this offer is for you. Anybody who has been disappointed, disillusioned, sits in grief and in darkness, depression, that is the people that this promise comes to. The offer is on hand to come before this manger to partake Eat, receive the bread of life, and be thankful. Remember Jesus in the Gospel of John, he says these words, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. As we close, I just want to ask this question one more time. Do you feel the impossibility? Are you despairing of hope when you look at the state of the world? Or even when you look at your own life? Are there areas of brokenness, pain, and regret that you say, impossible? Nothing can heal these wounds. As we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we come to the one who is the author of life. Paul describes God's power in this way that he speaks the things that are not as though they were. The Latin of Genesis calls it the ex nihilo, out of nothing, God speaks life into being. And he can put life in these places where sin has corroded and eaten away whatever life existed in the first place. He can put new life there. He can put eternal life there. God can make possible what is completely impossible in our own strength, in our own attempts, in our own, you know, conniving and planning to do the the possible, what is available. God can do the impossible. And this morning, 
He has made himself, once again, accessible and approachable, as though this table was a manger. And he is saying to each one of us, come and eat. Eat, partake of that which is truly life. Because God has made what is impossible possible. And so we invite you this morning as we worship together to come and feast on the Word made flesh, the Creator made creature, and receive new life and hope in His name.